We've talked about all wealth inequality in all sorts of ways. The 99% versus the 1% is one, but the facts around the 9.9% versus everybody else is actually pretty interesting. Just statistically, $1.2 million in net worth gets you into the 9.9%. Inequality of a certain type, inequality that essentially comes from a certain profound unfairness has profound consequences throughout society. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, it, it's the holiday season, and, and yeah. we have a gift for you. Uh, yeah. Normally on this podcast, we berate you and your cohort of 0.1 percenters about yeah. uh, how you're destroying our economy and our democracy, and uh, you're the source of all the inequality. But on this episode, you get to berate me and my cohort of 9.9 percenters. That's right. We get to uh, revisit with our old friend, Matthew Stewart was a new book out called The 9.9%, The New Aristocracy That Is Entrenching Inequality and Warping Our Culture. And uh, this book uh, obviously is an elaboration on, uh, on a piece that Matthew wrote a few years ago in the Atlantic on the 9.9%. And I love this book uh, and this argument because I, I do think that he very sensibly identifies, you know, I think, a new and sort of more fulsome way to talk about inequality, which is not just concentrated at the top 0.1%, which in many arithmetic ways it is, but the cultural implications of having an economy where basically the top 10% of Americans have shared all of the economic growth over the last 40 or 50 years and has essentially become a culture in and of itself, right? It's right. like this society within a society of people competing to maintain their place in that segment of society. And I think the cool thing about the book is it both, and this argument is it both elaborates how this segment of society is harming the rest of society, but also how it harms itself, right? Mm -hmm. That if you're part of this society, there are all sorts of crazy behaviors that you know we have created and are, are perpetuating and are sort of letting infect the rest of the society from the crazy ways in which we deal with kids' sports today to you know this nutty obsession with getting your kids into the only the best colleges and so on and so forth. It's just, it's really, really... I think pathological and destructive. And the book both points it out and points out our culpability. Right. And 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 I can tell you as somebody who's at the the bottom of the 9.9%, near yeah. the bottom, which by the way, so you know, it's uh just statistically, 1.2 million dollars in net worth gets you into the 9.9%. Uh, and and I get there by virtue of having owned a house in Seattle for 24 years. So with this crazy house housing market, which is another product of the 9.9%, and yet having uh, being in the 9.9%, it, it's incredibly stressful. 
this fear of falling out and this fear that uh, my daughter won't be able to climb into it. Absolutely. And, you know, as you know, it creates a lot of really, really crazy behaviors. And it's just, you know, it's just so different from how I grew up where the stakes just were much lower. You know, we've, we've talked about all wealth inequality in all sorts of ways, the 99% versus the 1% is one, but the, the facts around the 9.9% versus everybody else is actually pretty interesting. If you, if you understand the statistics. Right. Since 1963, the bottom 90% have seen their uh, share of wealth decline. Uh, today, th they have only 10% of the nation's financial wealth, while the 9.9% controls about half of the personal wealth in the nation. As I mentioned, uh, to get into the 9.9%, you need $1.2 million in net worth. The median is uh, $2.4 million. Uh, and it's not until you have over $10 million in wealth that you get into the top 1%. Anyway, Nick, I, I, I got to tell you, I saw a lot of myself in this book uh, throughout and uh, uh, not always comfortably. Yeah. Uh, so it, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to uh, Matthew about the book. So my name is Matthew Stewart, and I call myself a writer. Uh, and I have uh, published a number of books. Uh, people, I think, tend to think that they're on disparate topics. I see them as all united. Uh, the most recent one is the 9.9%, uh, and it takes a look at how inequality affects uh, the way we think and act uh, and uh, how it's dividing our country up. But it follows on other books about American history and also um, the history of philosophy. So who the hell is this 9.9% that you speak of? So there's, there's a math part, um, but since you guys are good at math, I'm going to go over it really quickly. Um, <laughs> it's, um, so we all know that there's been this massive concentration or in increase in inequality, but it turns out that um, all of the relative increases actually occurred in a much smaller sliver than we usually think. It's not the top 1%, but it's the top 0.1% that's got essentially all of the relative increase in, in concentration of wealth. And it turns out that not all of the bottom lost out over that 50 years. In fact, it's the bottom 90%. So in between, uh, if you do the math, you get this 9.9% of the wealth distribution, um, income distribution looks roughly the same. And um, it turns out that this is actually the wealthiest group uh, as a whole in American society. So if, um, 50 years ago, if uh, let's say the, the rich 0.1% had a dollar, the bottom 90% would have had about $4. Um, now it's 50-50, so they each get a dollar, but all along, the 9.9% has held on to $2.50, flat, just basically held on to its, its relative share. So um, that's, that's the math, but of course, people bounce around in these percentiles, and it's really more, I, I like to think of it more as a landscape, but what, what we see when we look at the economy, that there's basically this Shangri-La in the American economy of, um, of getting into 9.9%, and that's that's changed. So the last little bit of the math that I think is relevant is that the um, the ratio between the wealth of the 9.9% and the 90%, that's sort of the best way of visualizing the hill of the American dream. That's now about two and a half times what it was 50 years ago. So simple way of putting that is that the American dream is about two and a half times as hard for most people. That's a 9.9%, but it's meant to open up discussion, not, not to close it.
Great. So obviously you didn't write the book as a math exercise. Uh, you're making a more, a more generalized um, claim about the effect this math has on American society. So unpack, unpack your basic thesis. My basic thesis is that inequality of a certain type, I don't mean uh, just um, the mere fact that people have different amounts of resources at their command, but inequality that essentially is, uh, comes from a certain profound unfairness has profound consequences throughout society. And what it does above all is it makes it impossible for people to um, form a reasonable society, it makes them individually unreasonable and it makes their society unreasonable. And we're seeing that in our society now. We're seeing how um, this big tide of inequality is, um, is shaping the way individuals behave in unreasonable ways. And it's also shaping our, our political system in ways that make it profoundly unreasonable. And then, so that's a very abstract take, but yeah. I also think it comes down to like very, you know, straightforward things in terms of how we raise kids and how we go out and, you know, go on the marriage market and um, how we think about education and, and, and so on. And this is a direct line from some of your previous books in that you, you make the point that, that our democracy was grounded in reason. Yeah, well, thanks for pointing out the, the connection with the earlier stuff, because I do think that there's a, a strong connection and it works in, at, at two levels. Um, one is that I think that if you interpret American history correctly, you'll actually see that um, an unexpected equality was really important in uh, powering the, in America's revolutionary moments. So um, while when we look back now on the, the uh, revolutionary period, we tend to think of it as a, as a very unequal period with a few people in breeches and wigs and lots of slaveholders uh, running around. In fact, the American colonies were much more egalitarian than the, um, the old European world that they came from. And that was a really important precondition for um, the revolution. And then the other part is what you mentioned, uh, Goldie, which is, of course, the, the tradition of, um, of emphasizing reason and basically seeing, um, coming to the conviction that we can form a society that's committed not to a particular set of dogmas, but to a process of uncovering useful truths and governing ourselves. So um, that, I think, was the kind of essence of the American Revolution. And that's what I think we're we're losing as, as, as we go through this um, uh, massive growth of inequality in recent years. Well, can you unpack some more what you mean by the ways in which this inequality makes people unreasonable? Like, uh, you know, in, in, in the subtitle, it is entrenching inequality and warping our culture. So, you know, continue to unpack that. Yeah, so um, I'm really interested in what happens in in intellectual culture, I guess, because I'm a sort of academic manque or something. But, um, uh, you know, academic life is always at, at some risk of being irrelevant. Um, but when you see how it behaves under periods of rising inequality, I think you see a, a, a growth in that inequality. And in, in my book, I had a, a chapter where I had some fun with um, Amy Chua, the um, tiger mom, right, uh, of, of Yale. So she teaches at Yale Law School and she, um, you know, is, is very much associated with the meritocratic values of this upper middle class, you know, wrote a whole book about how you should 
torture your kids to make sure that they get into selective colleges and so on. Um, but what you see in, in her intellectual and political work is that notwithstanding that she could, the fact that she can probably see what some of our big issues are, she's so determined to hold on to her position, so determined to get her kids ahead that, for example, she overlooks the fact that a Supreme Court justice nominee um, has a, a, a pattern of sexual harassment that, that she herself had, had warned her students about it because it turns out that he's a member of the club um, and uh, he also is employing her daughter. And so she wants to kind of uh, stay, in, stay in good with, with, with her profession. And I, I think that, that that's a, a small story, but it, it reflects the way in which under rising inequality, as the, as the stakes go, go higher, as it becomes harder and harder to stay on the right side of the um, of the fence, people essentially absorb all these crazy value systems, and they um, they're they're prone to essentially putting out pseudo intellectual stuff like Amy Chu, I think, is doing um, in order to disguise you know, not very well um, a transparent career interest. So that, that that's like one small example, but there are plenty of others. There's you know, there's the whole family of the child rearing thing. I think that's got a lot of sociological evidence behind it. You know, there's the neighborhood stuff and so on. Right. And by the neighborhood stuff, you, you're talking about how homeownership and, uh, and I live in Seattle where our houses are wildly overpriced and my very liberal neighbors are just so fearful of losing value in their properties because they're relying on it to maintain themselves in the 9.9%. And it, it warps the decisions we make in, in terms of, you know, all the nimbyism we see. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I feel the pain. I mean, I, I, we just moved out of Brooklyn, which is of course the heartland of, of the 9.9%. And I don't fault people for individually feeling that pressure, of course, we can all look at the numbers. We all know that those houses and their their value is central to our individual economic uh, fortunes. But come on, if we step back, it's pretty obvious that this is a totally dysfunctional way of organizing housing and also organizing wealth distribution. I mean, they're, they're, the, the two striking facts about um, well, there are more than two striking facts, but a number of striking facts about the American housing situation are that we have this um, housing affordability crisis where 74 in 74% of um, metropolitan areas, the average wage is not enough to pay for the average uh, rent or to buy the average home. And, and obviously the only way that that can be squared is that you essentially have to inherit or find some lucky break or get the, the parents to, to contribute. Um, and uh, the other crucial fact is that we see that um, in those areas that are most desirable, you actually have a, a decrease of population in many cases. We simply aren't building enough houses. And you know, the obvious explanation for that is that all the nimbyism is, is, is freezing up. It's people gaining control over their local systems. This is something that uh, upper middle class people are very good at doing. Um, they gain control in order to maximize their value. They rapidly build walls and prevent anybody else from coming in. And that leads to huge um, systemic problems. And then the other huge thing about our neighborhoods that has to go has to be said is that we still have a pretty amazing residential segregation. I mean, it's there's some indications that it's it's easing in some areas, but it's not. Um, it's pretty astonishing, especially when you go to other countries and you come to the U.S. and you just see how color coded everything is. Right. So, so as you point out, my my neighbors and I were we're not innocent bystanders. We are 
sustaining and perpetuating this system. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a big part of it. You know, when you look at the numbers of you know, where does the wealth of the nine point nine percent come from, real estate, inherited real estate, that's a huge part of the picture, and some of that's dumb luck, but some of it is um, you know essentially people gaining a kind of monopoly on space. And then the other thing that for me is kind of a tragedy when you look at it in historical perspective is. Um, it's what I think of as the Henry George angle on this. Um, in an earlier time, um, and I'm not, not that much earlier, I'm talking about the, the middle of the 20th century, housing kind of worked the other way. It was actually a, a kind of a welfare system that ended up subsidizing the middle class. Um, and it was some of that was unintentional, some of it was intentional. The intentional parts were things like um, mortgage finance systems and, and mortgage tax relief. Um, and the unintentional things were the compression of uh, home values that, uh, you know, as, as the values at the top came down, the, the values of middle class homes in relative terms increased. And so it, it worked as a kind of welfare system for the middle class. But I think people have lost sight of the fact that now it's a welfare system for the top decile of our economy and everybody else um, is, has to ultimately pay the price for that. And of course, that, that also feeds into the segregation issue because it turns out that uh, Blacks, for historical reasons, um, often because they haven't got the house to inherit, uh, are, are renters to a much greater degree. And so they haven't been able to participate in this kind of weird system where we all throw the money into the pool and, uh, and the biggest pieces go out to people with the biggest homes. Matthew, can you um, unpack a little more how concentrating basically all of the benefits of economic growth in the top 10% is warping our culture. Can you give us some more examples? Yeah, so one one thing that got me into this was just looking at the parenting uh, issues. So I'm using yeah. culture here broadly and it includes sort of sociocultural things. Um, and, um, you know, if, if you've been in the game, uh, a parenting thing, um, you know, you, you see it's kind of nutty. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, the, insane. What, it's completely insane. Yeah, what, yeah. what people are doing. And, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty to some degree. You know, we, uh, we're trying to protect our, our tots from any uh, possible harm. We're also sculpting them right from the beginning with those um, precious experiences. They're going to make them, uh, you know, ensure their, their success within this 9.9%. Um, there's a good amount of sociology that looks at this and can kind of quantify it. And it can show that, um, that yes, American parenting is at one extreme. Um, uh, it's, uh, at, and it, when you compare it with other countries, what you find is that this American style of parenting, the hyper parenting, the supreme parenting, um, it, it, when you compare across countries, what you find is that it's associated with inequality. Uh, so the bigger the gap between the rich and the poor in any given country, the more likely you're going to have parents, and I don't mean just the the, parent, the rich parents. I mean all parents yes. uh, competing madly to try to get their make sure that their kids have some chance. And as we all know, it's it's not great for the kids. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, just to expand on that, I think that you know, in a world where you know, if I compare the world my kids live in today with the world that I grew up in, you know, the difference between doing super well and doing moderately well, we're not not vast, right? You lived in the same kinds of homes and you lived in the same kinds of neighborhoods and you, 
you know, you drove slightly different cars, but your kids went to roughly the same schools and had roughly the same chance. And it, but today it's this, it's this crazy winner take all mentality where basically the only possibility of living the good life is to become a, you know, a bond trader for Goldman Sachs, right? Or some such. And, you know, that creates this crazy pathology in parenting where, it, you know, everything is high stakes, where at five years old, your children have to decide what select uh, sports team they're going to get on, right? I mean, you know, when I grew up, you know, kids played all the sports, right? You know, and fall you played soccer and then in spring you played, you know, football or basketball or whatever it was. And then you ran track and it was all for fun and to be in shape. And today it's this high stakes game that costs $5,000 per kid per year in the hopes that they will be able to get a scholarship to a college or something like that. Yeah, no, that's right. And something else you said that um, really resonates with me is that at the end of the day, the, the great prize is that you become a banker for Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Right? And, and, yeah. and so, so then that leads to this further complication where, you know, you invested so much, not just money, but psychologically all of your identity into this project. And at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're, you're writing PowerPoint presentations until midnight kind of thing, which is what, what most people right. in those actually do. Uh, and that leads to, you know, a big existential quandary um, for the people who end up there. Uh, and then of course, for the many people who don't, then, you know, there's this sense that somehow they failed, even though yeah. they've simply failed to make it into that tiny sliver at the top. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the toll this is taking on kids today is really, really obvious with all the depression and anxiety and angst and, you know, combine that with social media and all that stuff. It's, it's not great. I think that's an important point you make in the book because, you know, essentially the 9.9% .9 are not only complicit in this regime of inequality, we're also kind of victims of it, both in the way it, it, it warps our own lives, uh, but also the, the sense of precarity that it instills in us, this fear of falling out of the 9.9% yeah. ourselves or our children. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to bring out both of those sides, right? That on, on the one hand, there's this obliviousness that comes from being on the winning side that, you know, essentially you, you, you are making it. So you think that the system works um, and it's just a matter of, you know, doing the right things and aren't those people idiots for not doing it. Um, but on the other hand, we all kind of get that actually luck had a much bigger role than we thought um, that so many things can go wrong. You know, one little misstep, I mean, you know, your, 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 your kid gets, um, gets mono at the wrong time, they, they, they fail their, their AP exams and there's no college or no good college for them to go to and it's all over at Starbucks yeah. for the rest of their right. life. Um, so yeah, there's a kind of precarity that extends throughout the society when you get this sort of extreme inequality. Yeah, and I think that sense of precarity, that sense of continual risk creates stressors in people's lives that I think is contributing mightily to the craziness of our politics and our culture today. This is why people are so angry. Yeah, well, I, you know, when you mentioned stress too, though, Nick, it, it makes me think of the, the health issues. So um, what, what we've seen in, in the United States before the pandemic is um, some kind of 
disturbing health trends where you have one part of the population getting healthier and healthier, you know, bravo, living to, you know, into their 90s and so on. Um, but then serious health issues showing up pre-pandemic among large groups of the population. And, and I take this to be um, evidence of a kind of a distribution of risk. So we often look at distribution of income or the yeah. distribution of wealth, but um, in some ways what matters in a, in a society that's collectively as wealthy as ours is, uh, is not those numbers, but this distribution of risk I and mean, how volatile a precarious life is. And what, what the health numbers suge were suggesting pre-pandemic was very simply that um, we've distributed risk We've we've jammed risk downward onto a big you know yeah. people somehow are willing to to take it. Yeah, well, they actually weren't willing to take it, but we did it anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Thank you, Neil. You're right. I think about the politics. I mean, the politics <laughs> also is a, is a big is a big issue. So I, I'd be curious to hear what you know how how you connect those 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 issues, the sort of the all the anxiety and so on that results from these structural economic factors. Yeah, to I mean. Politics. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what we've believed for a really long time is that, you know, that the that the massive economic inequality that we've seen in our society has effectively shredded the reciprocity norms that make social cohesion and democracy possible. <laughs> and, you know, you're not going to, you can't heal that with better political speeches, you can only heal that by paying most people in the economy substantially more. And a few people at the top, a little bit less. But, but short of that, we, you know, you can't, you cannot fix this problem any other way, uh, which I think is the, you know, effectively the central argument in your book that yeah. you know it takes more than talk. You have to actually change the socioeconomic relationships so most people both are and feel like they're included in and enfranchised. Yeah, no, I, and and thanks for pointing out that that is a, a central argument of my book because it, for me that that is really important. And in some ways, that that is why I thought it was yeah. worth concentrating on the nine point nine percent because um, uh, culturally, the, the the biggest problem with the political culture of the nine point nine percent is that it is it, very happy to talk about all kinds of solutions as long as they don't address the big structural problems that we have, right. big structural economic problems. So, and I, I would just like to convey the point that you stated here so eloquently, Nick, that, you know, unless we pay people better, um, they're going to be unhappy and no grand speeches and, you know, no uh, amount of virtue signaling and showing just how enlightened we are. It's going to get us very far. That's right. Yeah. So we love to complain about the traffic, but aren't willing to not jump in our Suburbans every morning with a few of our children and drive them across town to the private schools that they attend. <laughs> right. right. And, and, and as you, and as you also point out, Matthew, that this really speaks to a fundamental misunderstanding of where wealth comes from. You know, we in the 9.9% like to think that we're here because we made the right choices and we're talented and we work hard and we've produced this wealth, but that's not where wealth actually comes from. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, this is one of the ways in which um, I, I think an unequal society starts to become really unreasonable. It doesn't understand where value actually comes from. So I just take it as a, a, a very simple premise that most of the value that human societies produce comes from uh, cooperation, it comes from getting people to figure out how to work together. Some of it definitely comes from maximizing individual talents because some people are really, really good at something or other. But 
in the broad mix of things, what matters far more is getting people to um, work together in, in happy, coherent, ethical um, ways. And what happens as inequality rises is that uh, people develop a completely different theory. They think that there's a, there are a handful of superheroes that there's there, that somehow you know people like Elon Musk have IQs that are can't be measured with an ordinary uh, you know computing device because they're just so much better in every possible way. And that same logic extends farther down so that the people in the 9.9%, well, they're generating all the wealth out of their pure brain power um, and they really don't need anybody else. And of course, this is a delusional state of being. This is, this is just false. So it, it's not just that they're claiming more than they deserve in my mind, it's that they're misanalyzing um, where, where, where the wealth comes from. Um, so I want to write a book called The Origin of Wealth, but I hear the title's already been taken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, take, that, that title is taken. So uh, Matthew, let's finish uh, the interview up by talking about what we should do. What, as Americans, can we do to address this problem? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's really important. I think that, the, um, of, of course, I write books, you know, and I, and I read about history of ideas and so on. So I'm really a pretty bad person to ask for specific policy advice. But um, so, so some of my, my suggestions are quite general. And I think one is that um, I, I would like us collectively to think big and think politically. So I don't, I think when I say think big, I mean, you know, let's, I, I don't think adding a, a um, you know, just adding a public option on healthcare is quite enough. I think we need to go farther than that. Um, I think that we, we should be thinking uh, big in the sense of an economic bill of rights along the lines that FDR proposed. And I think that we have to do that um, politically. So I don't, uh, I, I wanna start with that because I don't think that we can solve many of these problems without being um, political and without thinking about how these things can be um, implemented. But there is, of course, some room for individual uh, action and you know community action. And I think that, that you know there it's a matter of um, I think people looking at the the local organizations in which they're involved and seeing how they can be improved. I mean, you know, you don't have to be a NIMBY and you don't have to take a narrow-minded view of how to uh, have a better community around you, um, and you don't have to. Um, just move, move into the so-called good public school zone because you've been told it's good because basically it's like you know, a white school zone or something like that. Um, so there are a lot of you know, decisions that people can make that would you know, perhaps free them up and also you know, help open up the system from the ground. Uh, but, I, but I do think that most of the, the real action is gonna have to be political and, and hopefully it will involve some significant change. How, how important is self-awareness? Well, I, I think that self-awareness is, is, is critical. And I, I have to say, I get, I get, I'm into a little bit of a chicken and egg paradox here because my argument is that the economic structural factors are really working against self-awareness. I mean, when it's in our economic interest not to be self-aware, we tend not to be self-aware. But that's what we have to fight because I think that that's what's, I, if we could break, and this, this is the point, this is where books are useful. If we can break some number of people out of the narrow forms of thinking that the economic conditions create, well, then you know I think that that can that can move things forward. So you know at the end of the day, if we were all self-aware, uh, we probably wouldn't be facing most of these problems. So one final question: Why do you do this work? You know, I have limited abilities to um, contribute in a useful way to society. So um, uh, for me, it's just uh, my, my one 
limited um, gift is is writing, I think. And um, and so I feel that if I can get the words out right and to get the message out right, it can it can shape a few people and 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 make a, a slightly better world. That's yeah. that's my shtick. That's a that's a great answer. Well, thank you again for being on the podcast again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my pleasure. And uh, best best of luck uh, with the book. We think it's really important. Yeah, lo absolutely love the book. It's uh, great. Well, thanks for having me again. We'll talk soon. So, Goldie, do you feel guilty? <laughs> well, you know me, Nick. I, I I was raised to feel guilty. Uh, that's just all a part of growing up and being Jewish. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, as I mentioned uh, before the interview, I, I see myself in this book in a lot of ways as a white male who went to an elite college and he spends a lot of time talking about elite education and how twisted it is. I look at myself and uh, comparing myself to my cohort, you know, throughout my life, Nick, you know, I made a lot of decisions against uh, building wealth and earning a lot of money. When the opportunities came along, I went the other way and pursued other interests. And yet, despite all of the bad uh, economic choices I made, uh, I still find myself in the 9.9%. .9%, and yeah. it's largely due to the privilege of having grown up in the 9.9%. Right. Uh, my story is really very typical. Uh, yeah. My parents sent me to an, uh, an elite college and I came out with relatively little uh, student debt. I graduated in 1985 into a job market where, oh, you're a smart kid from a good school. Here's the equivalent of $75,000 a year and don't worry, we'll train you on the job. Yeah. Um, I uh, largely I'm in the 9.9% due to buying a house in Seattle, which, by the way, I couldn't have bought without a down payment from my mother, who, by the way, the house I grew up in outside of Philadelphia was bought with a down payment from her father. Yeah. So it's this this perpetuation where once you're in it, you know, you're, you've got all these advantages that set you up. And to be honest, a lot of the stupid choices I made, well, they're not stupid, I don't regret them, but a lot of the choices I made in my life that were not based on money, I was able to make uh, because I had the privilege of knowing that I always had this yeah. family support system to, to fall back on if I ever needed it. And yeah. the fact that I didn't largely need it uh, doesn't mean it wasn't there and and didn't guide me through my life. Uh, and so I feel I feel charmed um, that you know I've been able to end up as comfortably as I did. And on the other hand, I also see you know the precarity of it. I mean, I, I got to tell you, you you know, I was not making much money before I went to work for you, and I hadn't made much money for a decade, and my lifestyle has hardly changed at all partially out of fear of, um, you know, what I'll need in retirement, but also because honestly, Nick, I want to leave my daughter something because yeah. I don't want her to fall out of the 9.9% because I see how mean and difficult it is out there for 90% of Americans. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be this way. No. You know, I think that the thing to really recognize is that, you know, I've seen the enemy and it is us, right? We, we have created these circumstances for ourselves. The fact that we're all competing 
madly to get our kids on select, you know, sports teams and into the best colleges uh, and, and, you know, turning ourselves inside out and in, into pretzels. These are choices that we made collectively as a society, and we could undo them as easily as we did them if we had the clarity of purpose and the you know, the moral intentionality that we should have. I, I just, it, it is a terrible shame. Um, but, it, you know, at the, again, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Matthew's argument in his book reinforces, I think, you know, a really fundamental premise of the podcast, which is that, you know, if we want the country to be better, then people have to feel better. And if they want them to feel better, they're going to have to actually do better. And to actually do better, we're going to have to pay them more. And if we did, a lot of this stuff would melt away, both the raw economic, the, the math inequality, but also the cultural pathologies that come along with it. And I think at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Right. So. In the end, it's all it's it, it all comes down to inequality. And 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 maybe the the those of us in the 9.9% wouldn't be so jealously guarding our wealth and our status if the cliff that yeah. we've created wasn't so steep. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Uh, on the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking with journalist David Wessel about how a program that promised to drive economic development into struggling communities turned out to be a gold rush for the super rich. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.